All right, we're going to be in John chapter 2 tonight. Um, we're going we're gonna to try to get the entire chapter done. Um, so we started, we started this study in, in John uh, at the beginning of, of January. We are now, uh, it, took, it took Paul three weeks to do the first chapter. I'm going to try to do the second one in one week. So we're going we're gonna to see how, how we do once we actually get into this and start making some progress in it. So uh, John chapter 2, we just, uh, as we finished chapter 1, um, we have Jesus who uh, called a first, kind of that first handful of, of disciples that came uh, to be with him. And then, as Susan mentioned in, in chapter 2, we pick up with what, what became known to us as, as Jesus' first miracle um, that kind of launches his ministry, his earthly ministry. Um, and so I want to I read the text, and then we're going to go back and look at um, kind of in, in three different parts of this. So I did, um, I did make copies of just the text, and so you may have something there that um, our, we ran out of ink <laughs> up here. Miss Karen said I can shake that thing and get a few more copies out of it. But but if you, if you have your scripture, that's all that's on there. But if you want to take notes, you could use that to take, to take some notes on. Because I have some, some scriptures going to go with what we're talking about specifically tonight. Um, so chapter 2, beginning, beginning in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana in Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars and they're there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Canaan Galilee, the manifestation, and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum and his mother and his brother and, and, and disciples. And they stayed there a few days. Now, beginning in verse 13, the Passover, the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had, that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Verse 23, now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he, that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all things and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. We pray that God would honor the reading of his word tonight. So um, we're going to go back and kind of walk through um, really kind of three different sections of this text. We'll start with um, this miracle, the initial miracle that, that Jesus performed, launching this earthly ministry that would go about in this area 
um, healing the sick and, and raising the dead and the blind finding sight and those who are lame being restored to full, this is kind of the first one that we see. Um, when we were driving, um, we were driving to church and Susan was saying, I'm, I'm anxious to see like what, what the Lord's taught you about this wedding because like kind of what I see when I read it at surface level is Jesus was kind of being disrespectful to his mother, you know? And so like you read that text and she goes, hey, all the wine's gone. He goes, woman, what do you want me to do about it? I mean, I, I, I kind of gave you a different translation of that, but <laughs> in, like in the reading of it for us, we, we look at that and, and, you know, this is not any in any way giving you permission to look at your wife ever when she says something to you and go, woman, what do you want me to do about it? Like, that's not, what, that's not the type of behavior that he's modeling here at all. In fact, what I found to be really interesting about this, oh, I almost lost my, my microphone here. What I found really interesting about this is not just the, the term itself um, that's translated as woman here, but also the tense of it. Um, like all of the parts of um, the parts of speech and the way it was the way it was formed here in the original language, it's the same way that he spoke to his mother when he was on the cross. Do you remember the moment when he's hanging and he says, "Woman, behold your son." It's the same word, same tense as this passage. So while we might look at it and go. Um, and that kind of comes across as being a little bit disrespectful. That's not at all what was being conveyed here in the way that he spoke to his mother. But what was, what's also fascinating about this, and we see it over and over in the book of John. In fact, at nine different times throughout this book, you see it talked about, he says something about, um, it's not my hour or my time has not yet come it's not time for me to do that thing. It's repeated over and over and over again. And that's what he was saying here. Like, what do you want me to do? It's not my time yet. It's not my time yet. It's not my time. My time has not yet come. This is what some of the, the nuances of the Gospel of John in comparison to the other three Gospel accounts. Remember, John's was an eyewitness account. John was there. He experienced so much of this stuff. And so being able to look at it and Jesus going, it's not my time. It's not time. What, what would you have for me to do? Now, Mary's response to that is pretty fascinating too, because when he would say, what do you want me to do? It's not my time. Her response was to tell the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. So, we talk about like the communication that happens between men and women sometimes. Jesus's response was, what would you have me to do? It's not my time. Her response was to just go tell people, just do whatever he tells you to do. Because what she heard was, I'll take care of it. I don't know how, not sure how that's what she heard, but what she heard was, I'll take care of it. So she just communicated, hey, whatever he tells you to do, do it. So he tells the servants then, take those jars, these huge jars that were used for the purification. So when people would come in to have a meal, that was kind of for that ritual, ritualistic cleansing that they would go through. Take the huge jars, fill it up with water. Now, you may have a translation that says two to, that they were two to three measures. Um, more accurately, somewhere between 20 to 30 gallons, each one of these. And the scriptures tell us there were six of them. So um, I, brought, I brought one of these just to kind of give you a, a visual because we, we get this water at the house, right? So this is, did y'all get these at your place? This is, like, this is five gallons, okay? It's a lot. I mean, we put that in that little thing and we use it for a little while. That's, that's five gallons. One of the jars, one of them, was 20 to 30 gallons. This is five, okay? And then there were six of those jars. So I want you to think about it. Listen, we're, 
We're not one of those churches that go, hey, don't have a drink of wine. That's not who we are as a church. You may enjoy a glass of wine every once in a while. I want you to get a visual of how much wine we're talking about. I'm just going to hold this for a second. This is five gallons. Jesus just asked them to take jars and put 20 to 30 gallons in each one of those, six of them. I don't want to do math in front of y'all tonight. You know how I feel about that? That's a lot of wine. Thank you. I was really hoping somebody just shouted out. 180 gallons of wine. Again, what we don't really know from the scriptures was whose wedding this was. It was somebody who Mary must have been very close to. Um, but the way these, these Jewish weddings would go during this time is that the, the wedding feast, the party that would go on leading up to would last a week long. It, I mean, it was, a, it was quite a celebration. And what we know from this as well, because they speak it, is that what would happen is as the guests would arrive, the best wine would be served. And then it says that as the guests have kind of had their fill I guess, meaning at some point, you don't really care what it tastes like anymore. <laughs> then you bring out the junk. the junk. Yeah, you bring out the other stuff. The box. It w- <laughs> the, the box, <laughs> the stuff that comes in a box, yes, starts coming out. And so when, when he took and he, he performed this particular miracle, He gave it to the head waiter. The head waiter took it to the one who was kind of in charge of making sure the party was running smooth. And that person tasted it like, what is going on? Like, this never happens. Who holds the very best wine for later on in the celebration? And the head waiter, because he got it from the servants, he probably knew what happened. Now, here's what's significant about Mary going to Jesus and going, hey, red alert, we're almost out of wine. It was a, um, it would be a social black eye if in that celebration, all of a sudden, oh, no more wine left. So that's why I say this had to be somebody that Mary knew pretty closely, that, that she didn't want the family, the bridegroom, to have to wear the, the social stigma of running out of wine to the point that she went to her son, who, remember, Mary knows who Jesus is. Mary knows that's the Son of God and goes, we're out of wine. In all of the in reading all the commentaries and everything, you know, everybody, all the scholars get stuck on the significance of why was it so pressing? Why, why did it, like, why did it have to be that this is the first miracle that he performs? He, he raised a dead man that, that, like, been in burial garb, ready to go, like brought back to life. Blind people from birth that had sight. Lepers who were outcast. All of the, all of the incredible things that Jesus did directly for people. Why would the first one be turning water into wine? And, and there's a lot of different thoughts that go around out there. Ultimately, I think what we could settle on um, and make a lot of peace with is that this was God's plan. I, I, don't, I don't think we have to do any hermeneutical gymnastics or 
be super creative with the text to just simply say, that was God's plan. I will tell you this significance about, not just about wine, but what we have in this situation is, we can agree upon is an abundance of wine, right? He didn't just turn some water into wine. He turned a lot of water into a lot of wine. And you now have six large jars, 20 to 30 gallons a piece full of wine. And there are, I'm gonna, I'm gonna share these. If you wanna jot these down, but I wanna share with you um, three Old Testament passages that give us some insight into why I think this miracle was the first miracle that he performed. Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 12 says this, they will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord, the grain, the new wine, and the oil, the young of the flocks and the herds. Joel chapter three, verse 18, in that day, the mountains will drip with new wine and the hills will flow with milk. All, the, all, of the, all the ravines of Judah will run with water. In Amos chapter nine, verses 13 through 14, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reapers will be overtaken by the plowmen and the planters by the, by the ones treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. I will bring back my exiled people, Israel. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. So there are, I gave you three references. You can find others in other prophetic writings where not just wine but an abundance of wine is, is given as an example of the coming kingdom and the end of days. So Jesus comes in his first act of, of, and what it says here is that he manifested his glory when he turned water into wine. It wasn't just that he performed a miracle, but he actually manifested the glory of Yahovah that, that indwells him. He manifested that among the people and he did it by turning water into wine. And what we hear here from Jeremiah, from Joel and from Amos is that there's coming a day when the, when the hills and the mountains will be overflowing with new wine. It wasn't just that he turned water into wine, but he ushered in the kingdom of God by performing this miracle on this day at this event. He's making a proclamation of, I am ushering in the kingdom that's to come that was prophesied by the teachers of old. It's really, really significant. It's and, and how many times have I read this, even knowing that it's the first miracle that he performed, but not getting this. And it's not just that he turned water into wine, but he turned a lot of water into a lot of wine, pointing towards what will come when those who have been exiled and those who have been kicked out, they're brought back in, and now the hills and the mountains, they overflow, they drip with new wine. It's an incredible, incredibly powerful picture. So, and it goes on to say down in verse 11, this is the first of his signs. So, it's commonly known as the first miracle that Jesus performed um, as he kind of brought in, brought about this earthly ministry that he would perform for about three, three and a half years roundabout that he would be walking and performing these types of acts around people. What's, what's significant that we find throughout the book of John is John never calls these things miracles. 
He never calls them miracles. He calls them signs. Why would it be that he would choose to use the term signs instead of miracle? What, what do signs do? Like if you just think about, I mean, if, if, we, if we took this out of a biblical context, we just think about signs. What do signs do? They, they point us in a direction. They let us know that what we're looking for, what is to come, that it's on its way. That's what signs do. They help us to track through, to get from point A to point B. They allow us to know that we're on the right path, and he continually, time after time, uses the term signs instead of miracles. I want you to write this verse down, John chapter 20. Verses 30 and 31. And it says this. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Why did he do signs? Why did Jesus do signs? He did signs. That's what John's saying here in chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. He did it so that people could believe in him. He used it as a platform to build this ministry off of. And we don't have time to unpack all this tonight, but just as something that you could take away, a fascinating study is, is to go back and look throughout the book of John when he uses the term signs. Um, go back and look at what the sign was that he did, who the people were that were around when he did that particular sign, and note the response of the people who saw the sign. That, that is a fascinating study. We can't dive into all of that uh, for, for time's sake tonight, but we'll see it as we walk through this. But would be a really, it would be a really beneficial study for you to go look, look at the signs, who were the people that were there, and how did they respond to the things that they saw. It's, it's pretty fascinating. Okay, so... Um, Let's move to, uh, so we kind of wrap up this piece about the wedding and, and um, him performing this particular sign at this time, at this location in Canaan, at the wedding feast, getting them prepared and launching this ministry, launching his, his earthly ministry by performing this sign. And then from there, we go to this, this scene at the temple. Now, um, there is quite a bit of discussion uh, among scholars and theologians about the cleansing of the temple. And, and the reason is because like we see this in John where we always read the scriptures thinking um, chronologically. We, you know, I, I start in verse one, I moved to verse 2, and move on. What we just read was about this, this miracle that he performed at the beginning of his kind of earthly ministry. And now we're to this thing of him cleansing the temple. Now, if you read about a cleansing of the temple in the other gospels, it doesn't happen right after he performed the miracle of changing water to wine. Do you, you remember that? In fact, what you read is it's as he's coming back into Jerusalem before he's crucified, he cleanses the temple. So where people are kind of split on this is trying to determine um, were there two different cleansing of the temple? Um, that, that is one theory that he cleansed the temple twice. 
Um, I think that as we think about it logically, if you think about this scene and some of the other gospels that go into a little bit more detail about it, I just don't necessarily believe that he would have had to do that twice. (laughs) Surely that happens once. That's the only time that has to happen. But I, I don't know for sure that we know that. But it seems more like John includes the telling of that story here more for the purpose of keeping a theme, that that it fits into the narrative of the storytelling that he's doing right now. And so he he comes in, it's it's time for the feast of, of Passover. He comes in, he enters into the temple. Now, we spent some time over the last year really thinking about the temple. We looked at it. We, we even we put it up here to where you could see kind of where the outer court was and where the, the holy place was and where the most holy or the holy of holies place was. What he describes and what's seen here would not have been inside those gates, but it would have been in that outer court area. It was an area that actually Gentiles would have been allowed to be in this area. But it was still connected to the temple. And it it describes him going in, seeing the scene, and then taking a, a whip and going in and driving out the oxen and 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 kicking over tables and dumping out the money, telling people to get the pigeons out. Very, very dramatic scene. And I think that what, as, as, he, as he drives them out of the temple, I love this part in verse 17 where it says, his, they're watching this unfold. And it says, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. He's, he's quoting here Psalm chapter 69. You can jot that down, go back and read that Psalm of David in Psalm 69, but that's a direct quote. Zeal for your house will consume me. We have to remember that Jesus' perspective of what he was seeing and how he was experiencing the world his perspective was vastly different than anybody else's who had ever existed. And we, we can talk about having a kingdom mindset and being able to view the world through the lens of this kingdom mindset and thinking about what you're doing and how you're experiencing life and how people are experiencing life with you or through you, how that relates to the kingdom of God. But when Jesus came to clean, and he cleansed the temple, he kicked the people out who were what, what you read in, in the other gospels is it says that you, you've, my house is to be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers or a den of thieves. You, you're, you're robbing the people. You're charging them more than you should for what they're doing. They're trying to come and offer their sacrifice and you're gouging them because they don't have what they need when they get there. And you're robbing people and you're using my temple, using my place to do it. So he, he kicks them out. But we have to know that this is not an issue of brick and mortar. This, this zeal for his house, for his, for his temple is not about that physical structure that's set there in that place in Jerusalem, but that ultimately we would become his temple and that he himself here, as he was manifested and put on flesh and dwelled among us, that he was the temple. And he makes that clear in, in this. When they, they come back and they say, hey, we want you to show us a sign. There's that word again. To show us a sign, because what he just did was disrupt everything. The temple authorities at this time, who guess what, were making money off of what was happening in there, 
You want to trigger somebody's passion? Do something that affects them financially. He kicked the people out who were helping to make money for the authorities who were overseeing the temple at that time. So they come to him. That's why I don't, I personally don't know that this had to happen two different times. They come to him and say, whose authority do you have to do what you just did? And they ask the question, what what sign do you have to show us for doing these things in verse 18? And his response is one of those responses that the more you read Jesus and the more you study Jesus is the type of response that you would expect from Jesus. You can destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll build it again. Because you had to know that like Jesus would have people gathered around, and he'd be teaching, and then he would just say something that seemed really, really, really off the wall, and then start busting people for the things that they were thinking about the thing that he said. You don't think I have the ability to do that? Now here, we, get, we kind of get that dialogue back. It, it took them 46 years to build this place. And you're saying you can rebuild it in three days? But he wasn't, ta- again, he's not talking about the brick and the mortar. It's just, it's just a place. It's a place. It's, it was a significant place because... God would come and dwell inside of that, but he's ushering in this kingdom. He's bringing the kingdom of God in. He's bringing it out into into the light, into the public where people can see it and experience it. And it starts with him. He's saying, you can destroy this temple and in three days, I'll build it again. I'll build it back. And then verse 22, it says, When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. They remembered the scriptures and they remembered the word that he had spoken. At his death, they remembered this thing that he said on this particular day. Zeal for your house will consume me. I was thinking about this issue of a sign and um, the temple authorities would say, what sign do you have for doing the things that you do? And it made me think of another scripture that you can jot down um, in, in Matthew chapter 12, Verse 39 and 40, he said, But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seek for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet of Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And then, it goes on into verse 23, and this is where um, we talk a lot, it seems like, where we'll go, when did that get in my Bible? And this was one of those things for me in this text. In fact, several weeks back, it was before we started this study of the book of John, um, I was reading this one one weekend, and I came in here on a Saturday night, and I opened the Bible, and I, I showed Paul, like, you seen this? <laughs> I know how much he reads his Bible. Obviously, he's seen it, but have you seen this? I'm going to read it again. I want you to listen to it, and if you have your Bible in front of you, I want you to read along too. Make sure I don't, I don't miss something, but... Beginning in verse 23, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, 
many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So I want to stop for just a minute. He was in Jerusalem for the Passover feast. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Now, um, if, if we keep this in the context in which we read it, now, I don't know for sure if this cleansing of the temple was a direct um, chronologically in order with what we saw with turning the water into wine, and then we have this thing that happened at the temple, or if it fit more with the theme, if he's telling a story to show the power and the might of Jesus to build to this point. But it's obvious that he had been doing signs. He had been doing things in and around Jerusalem at the Passover. And it says, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. That's why I told you, it'd be really fascinating to go through the book of John, find all of the signs that he does, who was the audience, who was around, and how did they respond to what he did? Because here, in this particular instance, it was Passover, and he had been performing signs. What those were, we don't really know for sure. But many people believed in him because of the signs. Verse 24, this is, this is what made me go, uh-oh. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Paul has quoted James 2.19 probably no less than 100 times since I've been attending this church, would be my guess. Because his testimony is that's, that's the verse that God used to rescue him. James 2.19, you believe that God is one and you do well. The demons also believe and they shudder. It's not, just, it's not just that they believe, but they actually have reverence for him and who he is. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. That is a terrifying verse. It's a terrifying verse. Specifically for American Christians. What we have in this part of the world geographically where we live and, and maybe some of the expanses around where we are, we have this thing that's become known um, that's heresy, but is quite well known. It's called easy believism. And it's, and it's taught from pulpits in churches all over these United States. Believe in Jesus and you're good. And, and what, what Paul would testify to you about his life is he came to that moment and God used that verse in the scriptures to say, Believing doesn't do squat. You believe that God's one, you do well. That's good. The demons believe, and listen, they're terrified of him. We've got people who wear the name Christian that say they believe, and there is no 
evidence of reverent fear in their life anywhere. The demons believe in shudder. And you know people, and I know people, and I was that person who knew but had no fear of it. And this is terrifying that people can see and experience Jesus and believe in him and Jesus go, I will have no part with you. That, your head is, that's fine. Like you know facts and you were raised in the church or whatever that is, but that's not saving faith. And that's why this is terrifying. It, 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 now it ranks right up there with me where he's separating sheep and goats. And he says, get away from me because I never knew you. Depart from me. But didn't we do great things in your name? Didn't we prophesy? And you're talking about pastors standing before him going, I, I, I had this many in attendance in my church and I visited this many people in the hospital and I had this many people fill out cards and I baptized this many people. But I, I, didn't, I, I didn't know you. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. I think this word signs is super important through the context of the book of John because signs are evidence. It, it's, it's pointing towards something. Those signs that you see on the road as you get ready to head home will help you get to the place that you're trying to get to ultimately. And I think, I think it's very significant that he uses that term so many different times because what he's doing is ushering in a kingdom that's not of this world. And because he's ushering in a kingdom that's not of this world, people need directions on how to go about getting to that. But listen, the signs, the show, that's not it. And that's what he's saying. People saw the signs. And they thought, that was super cool. Did you see that dude that we've known for our entire lives that's been blind and he touched his eyes? Now he can see? The man with the withered hand that he just said, reach it out and it just came out? The leper that's been begging outside the camp that he touched him and it was gone. That dude can put on a show. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because why? Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. That's what Susan was telling the kids. Listen, it is so stinking cool to know that you are intimately known by the God of all creation. Like, not that, I mean, not just like knowing your name, knowing the general area where you do life, but to be intimately known by him. But it's also, by the way, terrifying to think about being intimately known by the God that created everything and not only created everything, but holds everything together by the word of his mouth. Every fiber of your being is held, it's stitched together by the spoken word of Jesus Christ. And he knows you. He knows you in the deepest, darkest part of your heart where you like to hide things. He knows that part too. And it kept him from 
it kept on, it kept him from giving himself over to some people who said, I believe in him. Because he knew him. Like he really, really knew him. Meaning coming to the show's just not enough. There's some, there's some people doing some crazy stuff on the streets in Las Vegas that can draw a crowd. You could find yourself there standing next to one of those people and watch with your eyes them do things. You go, how do you do that? <laughs> like I was standing right here. I was watching him the whole time. I wasn't gonna get tricked by a slot of hand. And that dude just pushed a beer bottle through his hand. Like I watched it. That, that was, to a certain extent, some of that happened. There would be people that would just surround Jesus just to see the show. You'd be like, that was crazy. That was crazy. What I just saw, that was crazy. I don't know who that dude is. That was crazy. I'm going to keep following him and just kind of see what's going on. And, and people did that. But listen, then Jesus would start doing things like saying, if you're going to follow me, that's fine. But listen, I want you to take up your cross and follow me. That's, we look at that and go, oh yeah, I've seen that on a t-shirt. They, they put that, they put that on, on mugs and you, you can go down to the store and buy one and says, hey, if you're gonna be my follower, take up your cross and follow me. Do you know what the context of that was? What his disciples who followed him, what they heard? You can follow me, but you're gonna die. It's not about putting something on a t-shirt and going and being a part of the show. You're like roadies. Carrying his bags for him. Because you can follow me but it will cost you your life. And these that he did not entrust himself to were the ones that just wanted to be a part of the show. And it, and it goes, hey, I mean, yeah, believe all you want. I'm not entrusting myself to you, though. And listen, I've said this before, and I, I will... Life has bared it out in, in what I've seen. Salvation is supernatural. Meaning, you coming to a church, listening to a preacher saying, I need Jesus, maybe even filling out a card and being baptized, That's not it. And, and I, I, I always want to be cautious about saying that because I know probably 90% of you, that was your story. You did something similar to what I just said. And I'm not up here telling you that you're not saved. What I'm telling you is that didn't save you. That didn't save you. The book of Hebrews gives us the definition of faith. It says, faith is being sure of what you hope for. That doesn't make sense. And being confident or convicted or willing to die for something you've never seen. That doesn't make sense either. So if that is the definition of faith, we are going to need help because we don't work that way. We can't be confident of something we hope for. That doesn't even logically make sense. And we are not the type of people to be willing to die for something that we've never seen. So we're going to need help. We're, we're going to need 
a Savior to reach down and save us. We are going to need the Holy Spirit to come live inside of us. That's what salvation is. It's not easy believism. And I'm not telling you that if your life hasn't been wrecked by all kinds of garbage that you're not saved. That's not what I'm saying. I'm telling you that discipleship and following Jesus will cost you. It will cost you. And and my prayer is that this forces you to sit in a moment of discomfort. I've prayed prayers for people that God would keep them awake and not let them sleep and make them wrestle with these kinds of truth. Because we're really, really good at filling up our lives with noise that will distract us away from the reality of eternity. We just don't want to deal with it. But I can come and spend an hour and listen and go, oh, yes, amen, we'll sing some songs and I'll I'll have enough to push me through, to get me through one more week and then I'll try to do it again next week. You're missing it. You're missing this. You've done nothing other than what these people did. You're just coming to be a part of the show. And that is not being a disciple of Jesus Christ. This is hard. This was intended to be hard. And y'all thought when we finished the Torah portions, things were going to get easier. <laughs> Listen, the teachings of Jesus, because what he's doing is he's, he's ushering in this kingdom. We spent a year, week by week, walking through Torah, Do you remember what Torah means? Teachings and instructions. Now Jesus comes and goes, I'm gonna give you the ability to walk out that stuff. So if you looked at that and you go, then this is really hard. Don't expect it to get easier with Jesus coming because he's bringing that kingdom here. But listen, He's already taken care of the penalty for the stuff that we're going to screw up over here. He didn't take it away. He took the penalty of it away. Now he wants us to walk out with a kingdom mindset, all the things that he taught us, all the teachings and instructions that he gave us. He's going to help us walk that out. But that's what discipleship is. That's where it gets down to this reality, like this this nitty-gritty piece where it goes, just showing up and watching the show is not going to get it done for you. You're going to have to get down in the middle of this stuff and lean on me to help you through it. I don't need anybody to bear witness about a man. I created that man. Are you going to stand up and vouch for that dude? I don't need you to do that. I made that dude. I made him in my image. I made him with the ability to walk in this depth of life. This is not going to be easy. It is, it is going to require things of you. And should you just, we don't have to have like a confession time or anything like that, but just, this is hard for me. Just think about how much time you invested in the last five or six days 
how much time you invested in intimacy with your Savior. Like, actually spending time trying to know him better. Sometimes that junk that happens in our life happens because he loves us. We don't look at it necessarily and go, well, God's forsaken me because things got hard. The things may have gotten hard so that you would press into him and know him. What he's going to give you is more of him. Maybe not the job that you wanted. Maybe not the car that you wanted. Maybe not the house that you wanted or fill in the blank with whatever it else it is that we have a tendency to close our hands around and make gods that we'll go back and ask him for over and over and over again. But maybe what he's actually giving you is more of him, which is what you need, not those other things. And this is what discipleship is. And, and John is going to talk a lot about discipleship. He's not just going to talk about discipleship, but he's going to talk about discipleship from a first-person perspective. As, as one who ultimately was boiled alive but because he survived it, they just sent him away to an island to die. It, it was just the cost of discipleship. This is what it was. And you go back and look at the other 11, really, and, and maybe the 12th one too, but you go back and just look at their lives. It's just the cost of discipleship. And the nearer we get to the end of days, to the end of this thing, the more challenging discipleship will become. It just will. And, and I'm afraid that if we don't regularly have these conversations, that, that we will we'll be blindsided by something. And neither myself nor Paul want that to happen to any of you. I don't want you to be blindsided. I don't want things to come and knock you off of your feet as things get more and more and more and more and more challenging. Hey, things are dark. They are. And they're getting darker. I hate the news. I do hate it. I saw enough this week to know that, that New York is passing this law that you'll be able to abort a baby that's at full term, full, full term abortion. And we, that's dark, guys. But listen, I don't know that we're going to get anything legislated in our favor. I don't know that we should expect to get anything legislated in our favor. We've got to be committed to loving God and loving our neighbor. Deep, like deep pressure love being engaged, being involved in people's lives, reaching in and being where they are. And listen, not, not paying lip service to the fact that we're going to pray for people or situations, but actually taking things to the throne of God for people on their behalf, petitioning for him and begging for him to to be involved in it, to, 
to change their hearts. We need, we desperately need supernatural things to happen. When we talk about faith being supernatural, I believe that. The, the things that are going on around us every day, we need supernatural intervention for. Things that can't be explained away. I, I know, like I've talked to people. You talk about, you talk about signs and, and people seeing signs. Do it. Spend time in John looking at the signs. Who was there? How did they respond to the signs? Do it. There is, it's your heart. There's something that happens. It even says in the text that we looked at tonight that the things that Jesus did caused his disciples to believe. But there was another group of people that the things that they did, that he did, caused them to believe, but he didn't impart himself to them. What's the difference in those two people? It's your heart. There's something wrong with our hearts, and we need help with it. But I know people. I know people who have had that diagnosis that said, look, You've got months. I don't know what to tell you. You can try to fight if you want to, but honestly, the quality of your life will probably be better if you don't. You got months. Only to go in later, get another scan, and the cancer be gone. And, and people go, I, I, don't, I don't know what to tell you, it's gone. that can have one of two effects on people. They can see a sign and God can use the sign to change their heart. They can see a sign and start trying to figure out a way to explain it away. It's an issue with your heart. Two people can see the same sign and have completely different responses to it. We need supernatural things to happen in people's lives. I love that in this first sign that Jesus did at the wedding, I love that it says, this is the first, sign of, uh, first of his signs Jesus did at Canaan Galilee and manifested his glory. He had, he had the glory the whole time. He was, he was created with the glory. He's the creator of the glory. In this sign, he manifested his glory, meaning his glory became tangible. People experienced his glory in such a way they were like, oh my gosh, I see it, I feel it, I smell it, I can taste it. It's the manifestation of that glory. Do you realize, I'm just going to close with this, do you realize that you are a manifestation of his glory? Would you just like set under the weight of that for just a second? You, as a child of God, are a manifestation of his glory. You are the thing that people can touch and see and hear. You are that manifestation of his glory. You can be the conduit of his grace into the middle of a situation. And the world that you live in every single day needs that. They need that manifestation of his glory, the one that you bring with you, wherever that is. Because like I look around the room and like everybody that's here present right now, 
most of us, you're not in the same place that I am most of the week. It's my job to be the manifestation of his glory in the place where I am. But I can't be the manifestation of his glory in the place where you are. You have to do that. We've got to to be willing to set under the weight of that. And listen, it is weighty. It's heavy, which is why we need intimate time with him. This is a big conviction of mine right now. I'm I'm preaching to myself. If you can do anything with it, please do. But this, if, if it's that important, if it's that big of a deal that we could collectively say, yes, it is, what are we doing to try to ensure that we are going to be the people that he needs us to be at the moment that he needs us to be that person. To be faithful to the things that he's called us into, we need him. We need his word. We need his presence. We need the spirit of God to just indwell us and then like be this huge overflowing vessel this of this new wine. He ushered in his kingdom by creating an abundance of wine. Go do, there's another little sidebar. Go do some study. Do some study about the significance and the meaning of wine in the Scripture. You want to talk about something that we've taken and distorted and figured out a way to make something incredibly beautiful, ugly? Spend some time studying the significance of wine throughout the Scriptures. What if we were those overflowing vats that he created? He turned water into that stuff, into the finest, the best. Who waits until the end to bring the good stuff out? 